Welcome to Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store Soho in New York. Please welcome this evening's moderator from WOR Radio, Joe Neumeyer. Hi, everyone. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Um, this film is, is really a revelation in so many ways, and it is always fascinating to think about figures in pop culture, figures in sports, figures that are important to us, why they are important, how they changed in our perception, and even more importantly, what factors got them to, to where they are so that we can figure out that impetus in, in our culture that they make, uh, make us think, make us examine things. And that is exactly what this phenomenal film, O.J. Made in America, does. Let's take a look at the trailer. I told him, O.J., you're breaking the laws of God. One day, everybody's going to know everything that you've done, man. If you're a black man in America, you're fighting our war. Who sent a man? Where you gonna run to? The reality of black America and white America. Two totally separate worlds. For us, OJ was colorless. None of the people that we associated with looked at him as a black man. A civil rights leader in Los Angeles has said if you are going to be a Negro in a big city, then Los Angeles is the best place to be. I can somebody say I can kill this woman. O.J. Simpson as a civil rights victim. Uh, it, it was disgusting. It was appalling. You ugly murderer! You ugly ass murderer! Oh, man, where you gonna run to? man, where you gonna run to? It's easy to celebrate. It's easy to be friends when somebody's winning. It is seven hours and 43 minutes long. It is five parts, and it is one of the most compelling and gripping documentaries I have seen in a very, very long time. Please welcome to the stage director Ezra Edelman. The... Um, the film is, we should mention, of course, starting on Saturday on ABC, and then it starts on June 14th on ESPN. Correct. It is in five parts. We'll be joined very quickly, by the way, uh, by Connor Schell, uh, senior VP and executive producer of ESPN Films. But Ezra, I want to first start off by asking you, how did you get involved with the project, and what were your initial intents as you, uh, as you were going into it? Um, well, the aforementioned Connor Schell uh, approached me and, and said they were interested in doing... Um, a five-hour film about OJ. Um, I was interested in the five-hour film part. I was less interested in the OJ part. Um, but what that canvas um, afforded me when I thought more about it was the ability to sort of go deep into this history of LA, this relationship between the community and the LAPD, 
who OJ was from us, you know, his rise to fame and celebrity, you know, parsing his racial identity. These are the things that I wanted to explore and knowing that I had the time to do it and didn't just have to focus on everything that happened in 1994 or 95 made, made this palatable. How did you view OJ prior to the, to the film? Did you think of him as sort of that a pinpoint in, in American culture that kind of brought these threads together? Um, to be honest, I didn't think much of him one way or the other. Um, I, I mean, I thought of OJ, you know, OJ was a fundamental part of my childhood growing up, like he was a lot of people going back to, you know, his stardom on the football field and his being in Hertz commercials, The Naked Gun. I think by the time I started this film, you know, that image of OJ had long since been destroyed. Um, and I don't know that I looked at him with any sort of specific positivity and or you know, current relevance. I mean, the fact is, I know what happened, you know, with the trial um, in 1994 and 95. And a lot of the way that story unfolded and the way it was covered in the media was pretty anathema to me. And so I probably tuned out and was less interested in, in all of it because of how, peop how much people fixated on it. One of the things I find fascinating about the film, among so many things, is that O.J. famously didn't want to be seen as a civil rights figure. He always said, I'm not black, I'm O.J. His, his situation was always his particular situation. He didn't want to, want to be seen as a symbol. And yet, uh, he became both then and now, in many ways, a symbol for different people, different things, right? In terms of uh, civil rights and, and class and race and all these things. Well, I don't know about O.J. himself. I mean, certainly the story depending on who you are and where you come from, people engage with the story on that level, if you're a male or, or a female, if you're black or white, old or young. I mean, as far as what OJ projected, OJ projected goodness. OJ projected likability. I mean, it's like, and so I think he seduced everyone equally, black and white, regardless of the sort of choices he made in his private life. We were just talking a couple of minutes ago about how growing up in the 70s, OJ was everywhere, which is part of the thing that when you saw that Bronco chase in, in, in the early 90s, you're thinking, really, OJ? Because growing up, he's on Hertz commercial, he's on Monday Night Football, he's in Capricorn One. If you were a kid growing up in the 70s, there was no escaping OJ, and, and his, he was ubiquitous. Um, the sense that throughout the 80s, he became a different kind of thing, and, and then finally becomes the thing that we all sort of remember seems of a piece with a man who was sort of obsessed with fame and becoming a certain thing, right? I mean, absolutely. But I also think that one thing that got lost strangely with how rabidly, you know, the media covered the trial was sort of the notion of just how famous he was. You know, the, the horrific nature of the crime along with the sort of dynamic of it being a white woman and him living in Brentwood were the things that people glommed onto. And yes, he was a former football star. But not to the point of like, no, you got to understand just how famous he was to understood just how precipitous a fall he suffered and the shock that many Americans felt. Because if you weren't someone who was alive or aware in the 70s, you don't have a sense of him. And so one thing in the, in the movie that I thought was important to explore was j just showing you how dynamic a figure he was, how charming a figure he was, and how beautiful a guy he was both on the field and just to look at. And there's something about engaging with him in that way that makes his story that much more tragic.
There's also a nexus between Hollywood and sports and glamour. There's a moment in the movie when they're talking about the house on Rockingham, sort of being like Graceland, that everybody wanted to be there. Everybody, you know, that was the, if you went there, chances are you'd see 50 celebrities you didn't know were going to be there and then 50 more right around the corner, right? OJ had a lot of friends uh, from all walks of life. It probably there was, you know, I don't know, I guess maybe you and I aren't quite hip to this, but I think once you reach a certain sort of level of fame, there's this club that once you're in, it doesn't matter who you are and what you do, but they all hang out together. And, you know, OJ's uh, house, which came to a fin um, sort of, from a friendly standpoint, be known as Rockingham, it's the street he lived on, even the name sort of suggests a royalty, where he lived in this castle where people would come and congregate. And, yeah, you had people from the entertainment world, from politics, from sports, all congregate there to watch a basketball game or a ball game, and that's what he did. And so it's also, it's interesting about how many lives OJ touched, you know, on these different levels. He touched millions of lives superficially based on people who saw him on a movie screen or saw him on a TV screen. He touched thousands of lives, you know, in terms of people he came across on a daily basis, but also who he would consider his friends. Um, and so again, someone who, you know, put out this level of, of, of charm, this, again, this social affability under the world to be this guy who in turn was found to have been abusive towards his wife, which was not something that people were privy to, or even if they were suspecting of, didn't really want to go there and think about it further. Um, and it was something that when he was accused of murdering his wife, people couldn't possibly comprehend. And it made all the sense of the world that people couldn't comprehend it. It was incomprehensible. The, the moment uh, in the film where they say there's sort of a sense of of performance to him, no matter what that charming, you know, facade. He was a great yeah. actor, despite yeah. maybe not being a great actor. Despite the towering inferno, right? <laughs> yes, that's correct. <laughs> um, and and there is uh, his boyhood friend says, "I'd bring you know my fellow cops around and and he would be their best friend. He would sign." Autographs and be and be as affable as you possibly could imagine, right? Oh yeah, OJ was you know friends with plenty of cops, yeah, yeah. and that again is one of the many ironies when you get to the case in terms of you know the defense and how it was argued. Yeah. The idea that you know playing the race card, um, you know, in defense of a man who had sort of notably distanced himself yeah. from his blackness um, of you know accusing um, the. I mean, by the way. Just because he was friends with the police doesn't mean he couldn't be framed by the police. Right. Having yeah. said that, it still sort of sheds a little bit of a different life and that OJ was very chummy. And there were many people in the police department, black and white, but especially white, um, who were enthralled by him. Yeah. Yeah. This is a good point to take a look at our first clip right now from OJ Made in America. At the University of Southern California, they have a living legend. And at homecoming, that's all I want to talk about. The name of the legend is O.J. Simpson. When you saw him on campus, it was like, wow, there, there's O.J. And you might go up and, and wave or say, way to go, O.J., and he'd give you a big smile, and you felt it like you were a million dollars. You felt fantastic. O.J. Simpson said hi to me. Yeah. Hey, O.J., how are you? How's it going to work? I hope you're going to be smiling, Sadie. Yeah, about 4 o'clock, Saturday, yeah. at 5, yeah. I'm playing, too. For most of the USC students I wager, O.J. Simpson was the first African-American they really got to see and talk to because most of them didn't know African-Americans at all or any person of color. We are FC! We are FC! 
USC was a football school. It was a Hollywood school. It was glamour and glitz. It was not the University of California at Berkeley. It was not San Jose State. It was above and beyond reach of the movement. OJ went to USC in 1967. So he's plucked out of the black community, out of black consciousness, and he's submerged in an all-white university. And I say this, and I don't say it facetiously, but he is seduced by white society. Let me introduce Connor Shell, Senior VP and Executive Producer of ESPN Films. Hi, Connor. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question right now, which is that uh, in approaching this film and talking to Ezra about it, you knew it needed to have sort of a big canvas, an epic tapestry to it, right? A a five, six, seven hour runtime in order to cover all the angles, right? Yeah, I mean, I think we had wanted to do something more ambitious and thought about... um, O.J. Simpson is a topic as um, something that if, if you're going to explore O.J.'s life, there's certain things you have to explore, uh, specifically, you know, the, the events from June of 94 to the end of the trial. And, um, but there was so much more to his life that I felt, others felt, was so interesting. And so in order to really explore that in depth, knowing that you have to do one section of the, of, of the story, uh, it, it, it sort of sounds like a statement of the obvious, but, but it felt like it had to be longer. Yeah. It had to give someone the room to explore race and celebrity. Yeah. In fact, as we just mentioned a couple of minutes ago, that uh, one of the things that probably even a lot of young people don't know, but certainly the part of the factor of what was, what was so shocking about about the the Bronco chase and the trial is that how famous he was in the 70s. And now I'd like to spin it out a little bit. And as we were talking about the sort of the societal sort of tapestry that's kind of going into it, uh, looking at the Watts riots, looking at uh, corruption in the LAPD, or, or at least the, the racism that was sort of in, in Daryl Gates and the, and the LAPD structure there for a long time. Um, working that in, how did that become a sort of a strand in this in this bigger story? Um, well, it speaks to, again, this sort of sense of who O.J. was versus how he was tried or how he was defended, excuse yeah. me. But in turn, um, why people sort of invested in him as this symbolic character and why he received so much support from the community. Now, so much of that didn't necessarily have to do with O.J. himself. So much of it had to do with this history of injustice that they had suffered, especially in LA at the hands of the police. And so we're, we're dealing with a story and a group of people who have for decades suffered abuse at the hands of the police, suffered injustice in the, in the criminal justice system. And unless you sort of emotionally engage with that history, I don't think you can fully understand um, what was happening during the trial, both from the, the people outside the courtroom who were so vociferous in their support for OJ, but also what was happening with those jurors you know, in that box and what was happening in terms of why Johnny Cochran from, from jump was like, this is what's happening. We need to populate that jury box with these juries, jurors because 
it is impossible for them to separate that history um, having to do with the LAPD with, you know, that, is, that was tantamount to how they were going to argue that OJ was framed by the cops. You need to have a group of people who believed in that and believed in it firsthand. This is one of the, this is the first time Marsha Clark has sat down since the, the trial, right? Uh, well, well, now so, she's... Now, at the yeah, time, at sure. At the time, yeah. At the time, sure. <laughs> um, and Sunday, by the way, is the 22nd anniversary of, uh, of the, the murders uh, that happened in 94. Um, but I want to sort of talk about the sense of, of did, did Chris Darden and Marsha Clark sort of underestimate, overestimate race as much as, as they could have or should have in trying it and talking with her? What were some of the, the conclusions that, that she came to, you think? Well, I think Marsha would say now that um, they, she knew very well what was happening going in, that she had spent a decade yeah. you know, trying cases yeah. downtown and you know, where the race card had been played, and she understand yeah. the dynamics that were in play. But she'd also tell you, as it was in the movie, that she felt that she had a wonderful relationship with black women jurors, mm -hmm. that they were people who, who she felt she spoke to as a group, if it's possible to speak to a group like that. Yeah. Um, and so I think she maybe had a false sense of confidence when it came to jury selection, for instance, that resulted in the amount of black women in the jury box as far as thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going yeah. to speak to them and they're going to hear me. Yeah. I think she did sort of underestimate the amount that this history would, would play in this trial. But by the way, one could argue um, very cogently that the existence of Chris Darden on that team in the first place spoke to a level of, well, oh, they started to understand what this trial was all about, and they needed to catch up. Yeah. It sort of blew up on their face. This is a question for both of you. Obviously, the, the, you know, the acquittal was viewed two ways by different, different factions of, uh, of America. Do you think it's still viewed the, the way it was back in, in 94? Connor? Um, you know, I'm, I'm actually, I'm not sure about the answer to that question. I, I think um, um, I, I'll, I'll sort of pivot to say that I feel like what Ezra has accomplished in this film, and certainly in the first four hours of this film leading up to uh, the, the murder, is to give everyone an understanding of what the dynamic was in the community and how people felt. And uh, I think that clarifies a lot of feelings that people had in 1995. Um, as for how people feel today, I think, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that um, there are a lot of white people who thought he was guilty then, and there are even more white people who think he's guilty today. <laughs> as far as black people, I think there were some black people who thought he was guilty, and it was a lot more complicated in terms of um, between what was going on in their brain and what was what they're willing to say out loud. And I think based on what has happened with OJ in the last 20 years, people can say things out loud that maybe they wouldn't have been comfortable saying in 1995. Um, and that's based on, by the way, what happened in the, in the civil trial, being held, found responsible for those murders, additional evidence coming into play with having sort of the bloody shoe prints and him being found to have um, owned the Bruno Magli shoes, which he claimed he didn't own or never, he never would have worn those ugly ass shoes. <laughs> well, then there was pictures of him wearing those ugly ass shoes. And then just generally his descent into sort of debauchery and, and, and almost nihilism. Um, it, 
you know, that I think it's sort of in, you know, where he ended up, which is he's now in jail and he's been in jail for the, the last eight years for going into a room in this sort of botched Ocean Elevens like right. caper <laughs> with the schlubbiest wingman you could ever possibly sort of dream up. I think people are like, you know what? Maybe this isn't a guy who we need to sort of continue to defend. It's a good point to take a look at the second clip that we have from OJ Made in America. They do not need to go to Rockingham, but if they do, show them where they found the glove. That's all that's arguably relevant. We come to find that Ito was going to let them go into Rockingham. He's going to march the jury through the inside of the house, which is relevant to what? No part of the crime happened inside the house. What are we doing there? What we did that day is create an illusion. When you would walk up the grand staircase, there was a large wall with pictures of the family, pictures of friends, pictures of OJ's career. Problem was, the overwhelming majority of pictures were of Caucasian friends and colleagues of his. We had an African-American jury, and we wanted to make sure that the home setting would reflect the themes that we wanted to reflect. We took all of his white friends down, put all of his black people up, pictures he probably had never seen before. Because that's what we were told the jury would identify with. We made him blacker. There was a Norman Rockwell lithograph that we took from Johnny's office. And we put that picture at the very top of the stairs. We did not remove all of his pictures with white people. The whole house would have been gone, but it been dark. <laughs> Do that. Oh, you have got to be kidding me. It's night and day. This was an African-American man's house who had no associations with any white guys whatsoever. Marsha saw the wall, and she said, Carl, you know damn well he has never had this many black people on his wall in his entire life. I said, Marsha, what are you talking about? How dare you accuse us of such things? I was miserable. I was angry. That is very dirty pool. If we had had a Latin jury, we would have had a picture of him in a sombrero. There would have been a mariachi band out front. We would have had a pinata at the upper staircase. Amazing. Some amazing interviews in there. Were you shocked at any point or surprised by actually how honest a lot of the subjects were, Ezra? Um, yes. Yeah. I mean, Carl Douglas, yeah. I mean, we could have just had seven and a half hours of Carl yeah. Douglas. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the guy's amazing. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, but here's the thing, you know, certain people, what's amazing is everyone has such different relationships to that case and to that experience. Carl will talk to anyone, the hot dog vendor on the street. He'll be happy to talk to him for three hours about his <laughs> recollections of the O.J. Simpson trial. 
Marsha, yes, hadn't talked about this for 20 years. Now, maybe that's a little bit of the winner versus the loser. Um, and it's more painful um, for Marsha. But regardless, once I did get people to sit down, once you, you sort of got in the door, I was surprised at how open and honest they were. And the only thing I could come up with in terms of why was that there has been such an insatiable appetite from the media over the past 22 years, for better at that time and afterwards. And there's all these anniversaries, as you just said, it's the 22nd anniversary on Sunday, like who cares? But every year, you know, these people get called to do interviews. And they're for these, these sort of, pardon my French, bullshit things. And I think that when they sat down with somebody, you know, and us collectively, we'd like, we had done a lot of work and we had thought a lot about this. And so when we weren't asking Marsha, like, why she changed her hair or whether she had had a relationship with Chris Darden, I think she realized that this is something that was more serious and she was willing to open up and be forthcoming about her experiences. And just to, um, sing Ezra's praises for a second. I mean, uh, Please go do that. <laughs> to say that Ezra is prepared when he does an interview, I think is an understatement. Um, he does all the homework possible, um, obsessed over learning everything about each of these characters and story for, for months before he sat down with people. And when he sat down, some of these interviews were six, seven, eight hours long. Um, so I think that he created a level of familiarity with the story that allowed people to become very comfortable to tell him things that they obviously have not said before. Is that a fair thing to say? That is fair. No eight-hour interviews, but sure. Six? Six, sure. Six, okay. How many many hours of film did you actually shoot? What was the sort of final tally ballpark? That's impossible to know. I mean, there was so much footage that we collected. I mean, we did 72 interviews. My guess would be an average of probably an average of a two and a half to three hour interview. Some did go as long as six and a half. Um, And so there's probably, you know, 200 to something, you know, hours of of just interview footage. But that, you know, we had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of archival footage. Which, in fact, and leads to... Next n- time I tell the story, it'll be 10-hour interviews. Right, right. <laughs> he was with them for two straight days. <laughs> and that leads to something we were talking about just a couple of seconds ago, Ezra, which is that, uh, you know, we, the, the, the golf analogy, and then I'm going to uh, take some questions from the audience in a moment, but the, 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 the sense of, of OJ cheating at golf, there's sort of... I'm wondering if there was any interviews, any strands that you found where you said, you know what, this is something that surprised me, and here's a great bit of, of illustrative fact or illustrative footage to to back that up and the I guess the golf is sort of a great uh, microcosm of that right the sense of him cheating at golf and sort of the the sense of what that sort of says about his character and that well I mean I think there's all these little things that speak to who OJ was whether it was him cheating at golf with his friends when he you're talking about a guy who is so athletically right. superior yeah. to all these people yeah. and he's still like you know and he had everything in the world yeah. and he couldn't stand to lose yeah and it's like, yeah. c- come on. But what was as telling was all these people who play golf with him every day, they let him get away with it. Right, yeah. And they thought it was funny. And I'm like, what? Yeah. Like, no, no normal, sane person, competitive person, yeah. you know, we all have our own sort of sense of fairness. Yeah. Why would you let somebody like that get away with it? And that just shows how enthralled right. people were. It's no different, by the way. O.J. stole his best friend's girl yeah. when he was 16 years old, Al Cowling's. But yet, this was a guy who was bes- right beside him every step of the way. Yeah. Why? Yeah. You know, and OJ had that magnetism, that charm. Yeah. 
in the case of Al Collins, maybe also he was his meal ticket. Yeah. But like it speaks to OJ, you know, you wonder if you believe this, but I and I do, this sense of entitlement that kicks in yeah. and cements yeah. and the feeling of you do these things and you keep getting away with it and you keep moving forward and no one seems to be bothered by it. You wonder how that affects your behavior, you know, as you go through life. But it's a, we had been talking earlier. I also think that the, the one of the amazing things about the film is that, like Studs Terkel, The Great War, any of those those great sort of uh, nonfiction books that sort of develop a, a a narrative based on on all these anecdotal conversations. You really see the full picture through all the personalities and through all the the prism of viewpoints. Right. Yeah. I mean, the foundation of this film are are the people in the film, the people who you know, the majority of whom are from Los Angeles and who lived in this place for their whole life. Yeah. And they brought that, they brought those experiences to, you know, whether, by the way, their experiences growing up there and then there's, and then in terms of their proximity to OJ or in terms of how this played out during the trial. Yeah. But that's the backbone, yeah. you know, this sort of, and you know, that's, and that's also what makes this, you know, this historical document, it's oral history yeah, yeah. in many ways. Yeah. And, you know, and there's a lot of truth in this story because it comes authentically from all these people who dotted this landscape for so long. And in some ways, like, that's the real gift of, again, when I say I was, you know, if I don't know, I was humbled by people's willingness to be open and to be forthcoming because that's the only way these stories get told and passed down yeah. is through this oral history. And, you know, I think the, the thing that Ezra accomplishes here that, that makes it come to life, it, it has to do exactly with those characters and those characters recurring throughout different parts of the film and interacting with all these different, or intersecting with all these different historical events that really define the connection of the audience to, it, it's, it's, you know, it, it, it would be much easier to tell this story by saying, here are the seven people I'm gonna to talk to about this. Now I'm gonna to talk to five people about this and, and, and segmenting in that way. And instead, he creates this coherent narrative through the characters. Let's see if anybody has any questions out here over the left-hand side, yeah. Um, my question is, uh, we all have our opinion on whether or not OJ is guiltier or not, and I'm sure you both have, have your own belief as well. Um, do you think that the film leans toward guilt or innocence, or is it just a straightforward picture of OJ through the people who knew him or prosecuted him or defended him and whatnot? I, the question of OJ's guilt or innocence is not paramount to this film. There might be answers based on who you are or who anyone else is based on seeing stuff about him, his character, his identity, the evidence in the case. I can't prevent people from making up their minds or having their minds changed by watching this. But I think the question of his guilt or innocence for me is incidental to the telling of this story. It's not what it's about. Uh, congratulations. I really look forward to seeing this. Um, and I was wondering how it evolved once you were doing research and started looking at existing footage and how your approach was and how it changed as you went into it, as you started to edit this thing. So there was a lot of research and a lot of reading and a lot of sort of trying to absorb everything that existed before I could actually have, you know, figure out that architecture. And in many ways, there is an ability because there is so much on the record. And because you're dealing with history that is already there to, to, to give you that foundation before you end up going out and doing interviews. The fact is, if you went out and did interviews with these people without a plan, you wouldn't get much from them. 
And so there's a lot that was already known before I even started doing this. It wasn't informed that much by that process. I was wondering, how did you balance it being a piece of investigative journalism and a work of art? I mean, it's interesting because I don't know that I would, would consider myself an investigative journalist. I would consider myself a journalist. And so, you know, there's an investigation in who OJ is as a character, but not, you know, sort of using techniques that you maybe would ascribe to investigative journalists. And so, having said that, like, for me, foundationally, I'm, I'm interested in telling the best story and finding truth in that story. And that's always going to be the foundation of how I operate. Now, the fact is you're still making a film, and it is a work of art. But that sort of just sort of comes out naturally through the course of making it. And, you know, there's certain artistic decisions and aesthetic decisions that go in to making anything. But in some ways, there is so much information and so much story and so many voices to find and to mine and then to coalesce into something that makes sense that it ends up being much more of a journalistic exercise, certainly in the way it feels versus a work of art. But then, but that also happens because that comes secondarily in terms of the stuff you shoot, in terms of the score, in terms of how the thing makes you feel. And so it is both, but one sort of comes first. When you scripted the documentary or made an outline for it, did you originally plan to interview OJ or, or was it the plan that you probably would never get an interview and would work a different angle on it? Oh, oh, I mean, I would have loved to have interviewed OJ, but, the, but you know, when Connor approached me to do this story, thankfully he didn't say, and we're only doing this if you get OJ to sit in a chair and do an interview. I mean, he's been in jail for eight years. He hasn't done any interviews since he's been in jail. And so there was no reason for me to think he would sort of talk to me when he's been someone that everyone's been trying to get to sit in a chair since he's been incarcerated. And so frankly, I operated with the assumption that he wouldn't say yes to me. I did reach out to him after a certain point, telling him that I'm working on this film, I've interviewed this many people, I've done my homework, love to talk to you, never heard back. And I do think it's, um, you know, when, when, when Ezra and I first started talking about this, the, the easy thing to say is like, oh, go tell this story on this, whim that you know people will talk to you right and and that was this whole process of Ezra winning people over to sit down and and go through this experience with him um and you know it's a sort of a tribute to all the work that he did to to make that happen and and OJ Made in America begins this Saturday, June 11th on ABC, and then it is on ESPN Tuesday, June 14th. Ladies and gentlemen, Connor Shell, Ezra Edelman. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Thank you, dude. Thank you.